I want to take just a few minutes and talk about what happened in Buffalo two weeks ago and what happened in Texas just this week. It is an atrocity. It's heartbreaking. And as a community, and as a church, and as human beings, we are in shock and we are in grief. I don't want to throw out just basic platitudes or ignore the mourning and fear that we feel. I do not and will not get political about this because that has no place in this forum. And in times like this, we don't need more division or polarity. What we need is to come together as a congregation and lean more into God and his sovereignty. Because despite all this pain and all this grief and all this incomprehensible loss, our God is still on the throne. Terrible things happen that we can't make sense of, things we don't understand, and things that we're not meant to understand in this life. But what has not changed is that our God is still God. Our God is in control, and our God will not abandon us in our grief or mourning. Let's open this morning in prayer and pray for all the families that are suffering an unbearable loss in the wake of these terrible tragedies. Gracious God, we come to you with broken hearts and sorrow for the many lives that have been lost due to this unspeakable violence. We pray for the families that are grieving the loss of their children, brothers, sisters, and parents. We ask that you give those families comfort, a comfort that surpasses all understanding, comfort that can only come from you. Lord, as these families mourn, we ask that you remain close to them. As they question you and cry out to you, Lord, we ask that you bring them into your peace. Give them peace and bless them abundantly as they seek answers to difficult questions as they make funeral arrangements and say goodbye and find new normalcy. Lord, in times like this, when people question you and turn to you in anger, Lord, we ask that in those moments that we remember your steadfastness, your faithfulness, your unending love for us. Lord, in these moments where we're feeling such loss, so much grief, so much pain that we don't even have words to express how we feel, and all we can do is cry out to you. Thank you for being in our grief and for being in our sorrow for knowing and understanding our pain. Thank you for being a sovereign God that even when things don't make sense, even when things are too painful for us to comprehend, we can rest knowing that you are in control. We love you and we ask for all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Our scripture this morning comes from John 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had gone through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for water, I'm sorry, that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, 
Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of town and made their way toward him. When Dave and I were first married, our home in Plymouth had a well. We were city people, so we thought having our own well was really unique. The well was in front of our house, and the lady who lived there before us had a decorative structure over the actual well. You know the type, it had the little roof and the wooden sides, and I thought it was adorable. It turns out that having a well was a little more difficult than I imagined. Wells can dry up, ours didn't, at least not while we lived there. But it was something that I worried about a lot. When the power went out, which we know can happen from time to time on the South Shore, we couldn't get any water, and that was an issue just a few times. But wells can be costly, too. They require service and maintenance for the pressure and for the tanks. The pumps can burn out. Sediment can get into the water supply. And wells can be dangerous. Many of us might remember the story of little Jessica, the toddler who fell into a well and spent some 56 hours in there until she was rescued. It was a national story and one of the first news stories I remember from my childhood. But wells are a necessity to supply water to many. Historically, wells were where community drew water from. Water is one of the basic necessities for all life on this planet. We need clean water every day to live. Wells were, and still remain, a life-sustaining resource for people. And it is at just such a well that Jesus offered a woman a life-sustaining resource, an only God encounter that would change this woman's life and offer healing and redemption in a way that only God can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with gracious hearts this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can gather even on a moment like this. Lord, we thank you so much for the little moments that you give us when we don't even realize that you're here. Lord, we ask for your peace and for your blessings this morning and for some of the circumstances going on outside of our control right now. Lord, we lift that up to you as well. Lord, we ask you to give us eyes to see, ears to listen, and hearts to receive. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Welcome to North River. <laughs> to those of you who are joining us online this morning, welcome. 
We are in our Only God series, and over the last few weeks, we have been exploring instances that only God could have possibly accomplished. For example, we looked at the creation story and saw how only God could have designed everything. Over Good Friday and Easter, we heard about the man in the middle and how only God could have told the man on the cross next to Jesus that he could go to heaven. And how only God could do this, come back from the dead, and reveal himself to Thomas, who was doubtful, and refused to believe until he could see and touch. We learned that only God could make Abraham a father in his old age, and make him the father of many nations, ethnicities, languages, and colors. We heard from Pastor Christie that only God could humble himself by taking on human flesh and dying on a cross. We heard from Emily on Mother's Day about how only God could have guided her and her family through the ups and downs of the last few years. We learned that only God can love us with an extravagant love that can provide a way to heaven that overcomes our sin and self-righteousness. And last week, we heard that only God can forgive, and we heard about a sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair and her perfume. And that leads us to our only God moment for today. In our passage from John 4, we encounter a woman who was probably mocked and scorned. Likely, she was rebuked and shamed by her neighbors and community. She was a woman with a soiled reputation, disgraced and dishonored by her own people. Over the course of the last few weeks, I feel like I've had a chance to get to know this woman. And although we never learn her name, and in fact, there is much we won't ever know about her this side of heaven, nevertheless, her story is one of redemption and forgiveness and hope. She is the woman at the well. Perhaps many of us grew up hearing this story, and for those of us that have heard this story, we may have been taught that she was a bit promiscuous, that she was an unfaithful woman, a sinful woman. And those are just some of the polite terms I have referred, heard her referred to as. She had had so many husbands and was living with this sixth man when she meets Jesus. But I think what's important to note here is that regardless of her past, regardless of her marital status, regardless of her status as a Samaritan, regardless of her gender, regardless of her sin, she was thirsty. She just didn't know what she was thirsty for. And when she's offered living water, a solution to her thirst, she doesn't simply accept it. No, she runs off and shares it with those very same people who had possibly ignored her and gossiped about her. The very people that she tries to avoid in the first place are the ones that she shares the living water with. This encounter with Jesus is no coincidence. It is not an accident. Jesus left Judea and was headed to Galilee, and we're told in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus was leaving Judea in the south to get to Galilee in the north, and unlike other Jews who would purposely avoid going through Samaria, John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans had a contentious history dating back centuries to the division of the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom, but later, after Israel's fall to the Assyrians, the Israelites began to marry with the Assyrians, causing an even greater division. The Samaritans and the Jews didn't agree on how to worship. The Jews believed they had to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, whereas the Samaritans worshipped on a mountain. Over time, the Samaritans practiced religion evolved to where they only accepted the Pentateuch, that is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they rejected the rest of the books of Scripture, including poetry and prophecy. The bottom line is the Jews did not like the Samaritans, so for Jesus to have to go through Samaria is a major detail that we can't ignore. But why? Why did Jesus have to go to Samaria? Well, 
because he was obedient to the one who sent him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me, John 9, 4. Jesus knew his mission. And because he had a specific reason to go there, he was waiting for her. It goes on to say that he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus is leaving Judea and going to Galilee, and he's intentional about going to a small town called Sychar. He arrives in the middle of the day, and he's hot and he's thirsty. So he goes to the well. But this is not just any well. Make no mistake, this is not a coincidence. This very spot was the location where another woman was attacked centuries before. Her name was Dinah, and she was the daughter of Jacob and Leah, and sister to Joseph. Jesus, in going to the well on this day to meet and offer salvation to this Samaritan woman, also brought healing and redemption for Dinah. We have to go all the way back to Genesis 34 to hear Dinah's story. But one day, she was going to visit with some women when Sechem, the son of a very wealthy landowner, saw her and violated her. Genesis 34 goes on to tell us that although Sechem claimed to have loved her and wanted to marry her, his inhumane treatment of Dinah angered her many brothers. When they learned that he had attacked her, they hatched a plan to counterattack. This well where Jesus meets this woman is where Dinah was attacked. And after her attack, and to not bring any more shame on her, a marriage was considered, more so by her brothers and her father, but on one condition. All the men in the village had to be circumcised. This was to be their great sacrifice. Genesis 34, 13 to 17 says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to the one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we, as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. So Sechem and his father Hamor and all the men in the village were circumcised. However, while they were recovering, Simeon and Levi murdered them all, as well as taking all their livestock and capturing their wives and children. There was a violent history at this spot, but John tells us specifically that this is where Jesus had to stop. I mentioned Dinah's story because a Samaritan woman very likely knew Dinah's story because she asked Jesus in verse 12 if he is greater than our father Jacob. Jacob's family were her ancestors too, and she was a descendant of Dinah's family. The well was named Jacob's Well, and it still exists in Sychar to this day. So Jesus was weary from his journey and sitting beside the well when a woman comes to collect her daily ration of water. He asks her for a drink, and how does she respond? The woman said, I'm surprised that you would ask me for a drink since you are a Jewish man and I am a Samaritan woman. It seems like she's stating the obvious, and she is. But she knows that historically, Jews didn't have any dealings with Samaritans, sometimes going so far as to not even touch the things that Samaritans touched because they, commit, they consider the Samaritans to be unclean. Add to that that she's a woman and men didn't have too many dealings with women, she was probably confused. But Jesus tells her in verse 10 that if she knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking for a drink, she would have asked him and he would give her living water. Living water. That phrase is used a few times in scripture, but what is it? Living water was a term used for fresh running water from a spring or a stream. It was clean, fresh, drinkable water. 
the kind of water that would quench thirst. We know that water is a basic necessity for life, and living water gives life. Living water is literally a source of life, a source of strength. Every time we're parched and we take a long drink of cool water, we feel a little invigorated, we have a little more strength, we feel sustained. So when the offer is made to her to have this living water, she is immediately intrigued. She wants to know more. She wants to know how to get this water, because Jesus didn't have anything to draw water with. His first words to her were asking for a drink. He was hot and thirsty after a long journey and went to this well in the middle of the day when he knew that he would meet her, and she was the reason he had to go to Samaria. Women would go to the well early, either early in the morning or early in the evening to avoid the intense heat of the afternoon. But Jesus met this woman at noon during the hottest time of the day. We can assume that this woman avoided going when the other women would be there to gather because she was likely the topic of their gossip. She was likely disliked and mistrusted because she did not have a husband, and not to mention she was living with a man who was not her husband. So when she heard Jesus talking about this living water, she wanted that. Anything to avoid having to go to the well and either be the subject of gossip or burn in the heat of the midday. Of course she wanted that water. And when Jesus told her to go and get her husband and come back to him, she's honest and tells him she has no husband. And he agrees with her. He tells her that she is right in saying she has no husband. In fact, she had had five husbands, and the man she is with now is not her husband. He knew her. He knew the intimate details of her life. We don't ever learn her name. We don't ever learn what happened to all of those husbands. We can speculate that perhaps she's widowed. Maybe she's widowed many times over. Maybe the sixth man took her in as a second wife or a concubine to protect her. Maybe she was passed around from husband to husband under the laws of love or at marriage, where if a man died, his brother took care of the wife. Maybe she was divorced because she was unable to have children. I have even heard a theory that she was a concubine of a Roman leader, and he was unable to marry her because of her class and ranking. Or maybe all the stories we've ever heard about her were true, and she was a broken woman in a sinful and broken relationship because that's all she thought she was worth. We just don't know. Because those details don't define her. Jesus knew her, as only God can know someone. Only God knew her story and offered her a salvation plan. Only God could offer her redemption and forgiveness and a new beginning, a new story, a better story. We can rightly assume that she avoided the well at times when all the other women would be there, so maybe there was some shame or condemnation there. But when confronted with a Jewish man, she is honest about her situation. At this point, for all she knows, he is just a man asking for a drink. And when he told her to get her husband, she could have made up a story. But she was honest with this stranger. She had no husband, and what he says next, I'm sure, shook her to her core, because he knew her. He knew that she had told the truth, but beyond that, he knew exactly how many husbands she had had. He knew all about her current situation, and when she hears him say all this, she doesn't scoff. She doesn't try to tell him anything differently. She doesn't get defensive or offer any reason, even if only to make herself look better. I'm sure she was taken aback when confronted with the fact that this man, this unknown Jewish man, knew her past. But what I love about her story is that she doesn't hide from it. She doesn't try to spin her story to make it look better. She doesn't lie. She doesn't offer excuses. Because don't we do that? Don't we sometimes try to bend our truths 
offer excuses, avoid reality. When we're confronted with some ugly truths about ourselves, don't we try to spin it? Don't we try to make excuses for why we do what we do? Don't we try to get defensive? Try to explain our side, our version? Don't we do that with ourselves? Don't we do that with God? This Samaritan woman, this promiscuous, sinful, unfaithful, whatever we want to call her, when faced with her harsh reality, admitted who she was. She admitted who she was to the one that created her. I think we can all learn something from this woman's story, but her story wasn't completed. It was just beginning. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus offered her living water, a way to quench her spiritual thirst, as well as forgiveness and redemption, a fullness of life. He offered her truth, and he gave her value. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Many Samaritans in that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. Did you catch that? Once she accepted the living water, she didn't need her water jar anymore. She wasn't thirsty anymore. She had what only God can give. Her spiritual thirst was sated, and beyond that, she had been giving the living water to share. She takes that living water and went into town to the very people that she had probably been trying to avoid, the very people that we assume mocked and judged and gossiped about her, and she shared her testimony with them. With seven words, she offered them something that could change their lives. He told me all I ever did. She offered them Jesus. He had told her who he was, that he was the Christ. In verse 26, when she said that she knew the Messiah was coming, he tells her, I who speak to you am he. He revealed himself to her, a Samaritan woman. He told her who he was, knowing that she would share that information. He didn't tell another Jew, not the Pharisees or the Sadducees, not the political or military leaders, a woman a woman from a place that was considered lowly and dirty and decidedly not Jewish. Only God could choose her. Living water was not just offered to satiate an unquenchable thirst, although make no mistake, she was thirsty. Living water was offered as a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen to Jesus' words from John 7, 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Rivers flowing with living water, flowing out of believers to other people, sharing the gospel, evangelizing. Sharing Jesus is how living water flows. The unnamed Samaritan woman was the first evangelist. She left her water jar and went into town, and her seven-word testimony brought many Samaritans to believe in Jesus. He told me all I ever did. Our words, our testimonies, have the power to transform lives and bring people into relationship with Jesus. I know many of us, myself included, think that we don't have much to offer, that our lives are insignificant, that our mundane existences can't possibly serve a purpose in God's glorious kingdom. Who are we? We get up and go to work, spend time with our friends and families. We pay bills, enjoy a hobby, maybe play a sport. What's so special about that? Well, 
When we think back to the Samaritan woman, her name is never given, but he knew her. Her sins were many, but he loved her. She chose to go to the well when no one was there to talk to, but that is where he met her and talked with her. Knowing that she would accept the gift of living water and that it would flow from her to many others. Only God could have met her in that moment at that well, and only God would have chosen her, accepted her, loved her, not because of anything she had done, but despite everything she had done. Have you ever heard of kintsugi? Kintsugi is a Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the breakage with silver, gold, or platinum. By doing so, the broken vessel is not just repaired, but it is repaired beautifully and with precious metal to add strength and beauty. In fact, the more broken it is, the more valuable it becomes. The more pieces that are mended renders the piece highly valuable. I want you to think on this image for just a moment, because this is what God does with us. He uses our brokenness, the pieces of ourselves that we think are worthless, the brokenness that we hide away out of shame or fear or defeat. What we think is broken in us, God sees as valuable. That's my big idea for the day. What we think is broken in us, God sees as valuable. Because we all have things in our past that we would prefer to not have to relive. Things we struggle with, broken relationships, addictions, hurts, betrayals. What is so beautiful about our God is that he uses those very things, redeems us, and washes us clean so that we don't live in our shame or defeat anymore. Those things don't define us. Like Kintsugi, the broken becomes not just useful, but beautiful. Do you believe that? Do you believe that out of your brokenness can come beauty? Do you believe that only God can find beauty in the places that we try to hide away? Do you believe that only God can take those broken pieces and mend us and not just give us beauty, but value and worth? Only our God can do that. Only our God can love us so wholly that those jagged and broken pieces become a source of strength. That woman lived in shame. She lived in darkness and defeat and carried her water jar every day in the hot sun to avoid her shame. But that afternoon, she left her jug and with a carefree abandon went to tell everyone that she was not that woman anymore. He told me all I ever did. What is he telling you today? How is he using your words and your testimony as a source of living water? Living water is meant to be shared because I'm telling you, we live in a very thirsty world. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for finding beauty where we just see nothing but shame and defeat and fear. Lord, thank you for using our brokenness as a source of living water. Help us to bring that living water to the others that need it, Lord, because they are all around us. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the mighty ways that you're working in us and in our lives and in our community right now. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.